Hello and welcome to the LDA Podcast. I'm Matt Richter. Clark Quinn and I are so happy to have our dear friend and colleague Elam Araby join us today. Elam is an award-winning learning designer and global consultant in corporate and higher ed with more than 15 years experience in the US, Southeast Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. She's championed better evaluation practices in several organizations and done practical research on evaluation to ensure efficiency and effectiveness of learning programs that lead to learning transfer and impact. She holds a PhD in Interaction and Media Sciences from the University of Nevada, where her thesis was on enhancing training design based on training evaluation to investigate the effects on training transfer. Today, we're going to explore the nuance and sometimes vague aspects of culturally responsive learning and how that intricately ties to research and practice. So I am thrilled to welcome Elam Erby to our show. Elam, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. As mentioned, we're going to focus on one big topic today, but it covers a whole vast array of other topics. What we're interested in are those barriers, the unspoken barriers in our field. How do we get buy-in? How do we build partnerships with those folks? How do we build partnerships with people who may not be barriers and so forth? And so, Ellen, you've had a tremendous amount of experience dealing with barriers uh, in your career. And uh, we were teasing and joking uh, about how humans can often be the barriers themselves, that it's not always just a system at play. And so why don't we open with that? What what are some of the barriers that we're thinking about when we run into getting buy-in on what we want to achieve? The key thing that all along, since the beginning of my career um, until now, that I consider myself more seasoned is that um, is the stakeholders, the subject matter experts we're working with, sometimes they resist the change. And by change, I'm referring to, for instance, applying research into our design, into our practices, or um, embedding or integrating um, some online elements that can actually give more flexibility to the learning experience of the learners. This, um, our field in terms of doing a good job for the learners one of the things is the partnership that we build with those stakeholders, specifically the subject matter experts who would actually complement at work because we can't exist without them. We can't go ahead without them and they can go ahead without us. And if they just don't want to work with us or they just make it really hard for us, we definitely can do a good job for learners. That, that's really interesting. You're implying in, in your statement that there are lots of different roles, which we obviously know, but I doubt we are as explicit about what those roles are and who these different constituencies are. Clark, who are the people we interact with 
that have different responsibilities, possibly different motives when they engage with us? There's a wide variety of people and more than we actually tend to involve. So we have the, the, the business owners who say, I want X or Y or Z, I need this change. We have the subject matter experts they point us to. We have the learners um, that are the uh, victims of our machinations. Um, <laughs> and there can be a wide variety of people. Then there's also, you know, legal can be involved, depending on what you're talking about. Customers can be involved if they're the end users of the machinations. Um, and one of the things I've argued we don't do enough of when we talk about SMEs is think about their different differentiations within that role. So some are experts in the underlying approach, the theory, but other ones are the supervisors of the performers and see the actual mistakes they make. And those aren't necessarily the same people. And we really should be, I think, triangulating the evidence we have. So we're looking at conceptual mistakes. We're looking at actual real world mistakes, as well as the, the conceptual idea of what they should be doing and the real context in which they're performing. So, and I'm sure, Matt, you've got some more stakeholders I'm not thinking about. Well, when I when I think about it, we have the the aforementioned subject matter experts. We have the aforementioned business stakeholders, but we also have business folks that are not our stakeholders that influence the process, but would be very happy if we had nothing to do. That, in other words, <laughs> what our stakeholder wants is often in conflict with what they may want. Exactly. And so we have those business folks to deal with as well. And you mentioned our victims, I mean, our, our users, um, but we probably also have their customers as well that are indirect impacts on the work we do and so forth. But this also implies that there's, there's a, a time component to this too, right? So we run into different barriers of people and systems throughout the process. So when we're designing or analyzing up front, we're going to hit a whole group of barriers. But when we're actually implementing and delivering our in intervention, we run into a different set of barriers. And then post-program, we run into other barriers as we try and transfer and evaluate and so forth. And so how does this function of time impact the types of trouble we can get into? And see, I want to just um, wrapping up based on what you and Clark just mentioned about these stakeholders. I want to just conclude it just one word as humans is the key barriers in here. Yuck. You know, because humans are the ones who are making some decisions and these decisions might, those are the ones who create the processes. Those are the ones who create those timelines and those regulations as well as requirements that everyone has to follow. Most importantly, the way they communicate with each other or do not. So it's a very complex system if you want to take a look at it. But the reason that I want to emphasize more on the human factor in here is mainly because I never realized when I was doing my master's that just having sort of a skills as an instructional designer is just sufficient. When I started the job, I realized that it's working with the people and it's not just those stakeholders who, um, from the leadership who actually comes up with suddenly 
um, you know, a requirement that everyone has to use a specific tool or a format of delivery, for instance, up to going down to the subject matter experts who are the content experts. Um, all of those, including, for instance, when right now in my job, those who are donors could also influence those decisions as well. So um, how to tackle all of that? I wanted to get them because essentially I would get to narrow down my work with those whom I creating a learning experience, that learning material. I don't want to use uh, a few words in here to just, let's just imagine that we are talking about um, a learning program, right? Or a course. And um, those people who have been told that they need to be involved in this role, they're just um, just one part of that whole piece. So when two years ago in Devler and I talked about using bridging the gap between research and practice, and I proposed using implementation science, that's more common in healthcare, but it really is relevant to our field as well, because the key stage of that is starts with acceptability. So any kind of innovative idea needs to be accepted by all the stakeholders. And this is our job to understand who is involved in this whole um, cycle or ecosystem that we are dealing with. And we might not be aware of those backend influencers or decision makers that would eventually have an impact on our work. And getting them, my proposal, this is what I learned that through my work was that I need to find out about this first and then get them involved and then see how I can leverage without stepping on anybody's toes or, you know, just, it requires a lot of like maneuvering as if you are in a huge system that dealing with too many human factors that that's why I'm saying human factor, you know. I'm reminded that uh, when you first started talking about humans and then as you concluded with that talk, that your team members are also humans. You have. I was going to say that exactly. And they may have personal issues and interpersonal. And I was just remembering hearing or reading somewhere recently somebody going, "Look, you come out with the skills in instructional design, and there's so much more to being successful, like just dealing with people and dealing with a project management, which tends not to get covered. They're beginning to change that. So there are a lot of business issues." that we just aren't necessarily prepared to deal with. And that includes not just dealing with the external stakeholders, but our own internal team members. And as Matt, you suggested that factor of time, who is doing what changes depending on if you're the solo practitioner doing it all, or whether you're in a company where there's analysts who hand off to designers, who hand off to developers, who hand off to delivery teams, which can raise, you know, that sort of handoff can raise issues as well. So it gets complex. It when really I, is complex, yeah. When I was younger, we used to uh, get coached to do influencing map, uh, influence maps, uh, to diagram mm -hmm. out who's going to affect what parts of the project. 
And at first I thought that was kind of silly, you know, it was a sales endeavor, but it was really, really helpful as a way of starting to understand who was going to affect my project in different ways. And then uh, taking each of those folks that we would identify and realizing that there's there's only three reasons people say no to you in business. I mean, people say no to you quite often in non-business settings for many reasons. But in business, it's only three time, three reasons. They don't buy your premise. So they don't accept the problem you're you're saying that exists. They accept the premise, but they don't accept your solution. Right? Or Finally, they accept the premise, they accept the solution, they don't accept you. So they mm -hmm. don't trust you or respect you enough to handle it. And so if you can go in and preemptively understand where each of these stakeholders or each of these influencers are going to potentially reject you, then that goes a tremendously long way to mitigating things in advance. Perfect. So let me just, that's exactly what I wanted to share today in our chat, because um, these questions that I kept asking myself that, why is it the case? Why is it that they don't want to work with me? Or even team members, sometimes your own team members who you solely rely on them and they have actually a key role in impacting your project. That's also important. So I totally agree with you about the saying no, and I wanted to understand better why that is the case. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to be sharing with you right now is based on my experience. And coincidentally, after over 10 years or so, when I read Adam um, Grant's um, Think Again, and I got the answer, uh, I still had the question, but I just learned the way to, to somehow maneuver that in my work. One of the things was that I learned was that if they say no, um, I wanted to understand why to better understand them. So not analyze them, but to empathize with them and accept the fact that people could have just simply different views. So if they hold a different view than you, it's okay. But now you have to find different ways of building trust with them and see how that starts with self. So my mindset personally had a huge impact on how things changed for me when I was working with my stakeholders. When I use the term stakeholders, I'm referring to anyone who had an impact on the project because it's not just a subject matter expert, they also have chairs. And the chairs have their bosses and all of them would be in the meeting with you. And um, so, one was that I have to have an open mind and I shouldn't go in. That's exactly how it was the very first time, my younger self, that I got my master's, so I'm the expert and they must listen to me. So they either follow what I say or I'm not going to work with them. And in right. fact, who the heck are they? Who the heck <laughs> exactly. are they? Exactly. And they need me. So why should I, you know, persuade them to work with me? But, um, my viewpoint changed is with those that I call them difficult people, I actually have more lasting relationship until now because I worked on building that trust and relationship and partnership with them. So how I changed was that 
first of all, so I accept it. It's not a personal matter. You know, the conflict, if the conflict, I try to stay away from that personal conflict or emotional conflict that can certainly affect any team members. Very then seeing it as a task conflict that we are just having different views and opinions. Next, if someone really for a very long time believes in something and they shared with me gradually as they could open up and they could build their trust was that, you know what? Um, it's so hard for us to see this change because we're not comfortable with always being doing this this way. So that kind of scares us. It just is out of our comfort zone. Or even if they accept, they tell me openly that um, I'm really, I have, I'm anxious of how even I can um, use all these strategies you are sharing with me because I don't know if I'm going to fail or I'm going to go and do a good job. So they were doubting themselves in terms of dealing with that change, you know. And that helped me learn that I need to empathize with them and understand that it's okay. And then use and take those mini incremental steps to achieve the final goal. And I loved the part that you mentioned, Matt, about our learners have customers too. In healthcare, whom we are training the health providers have those patients. So I try to shift their mindset that we are doing this work for their uh, you know, sake. It's not for us only. So let's just look at a bigger goal than just who is saying what. What I really love about that is the vision too often i think l d groups lose sight they mm -hmm. think their customer is the people in the classroom whether it's a virtual classroom or it's it's in person or it's the end users on a learning intervention but it's not they're in the context of a business and the business is there to serve clients That's right. in a capitalistic environment to raise capital but they're there for other purposes. And learning is just one sub-function within that big picture. That's so vital for us to keep in mind. Clark, I remember uh, we had this huge debate uh, intentionally between you and Will, Will Tallheimer, uh, on learning impact uh, and whether it was the learning that was important or the performance outcome that learning supported and worked toward. And you won the debate, you were on the performance side. And uh, you wanna talk a little bit about that and why why that was so important for us to think about or consider? I do, but I wanna come back to something Elham oh, said first. Neither of you wanna go down the path I keep trying to lead. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> that's because we're people, we're complex. But that was Elham's point, I thought was sort of a counter to your three points, which I liked. But she was saying, but there may be other reasons people resist. They may be uncertain. They may not have self-confidence and empathizing with them. I remember hearing Peter Dieger talk about change and he said, you got to make people, it's a myth that people resist change. They make changes all the time. They change jobs. They move around trying to find a good place to live. Um, they, uh, so they get married, they have kids. These are big changes, but he said they choose those and they resist having change imposed upon them. But I think, he, and I, he argued, and I 
believe strongly that you should make it a choice. We can do it this old way. Here's the problems with that. We can do this new way. Here are the benefits. If you do that right, they should be willing to make the change. But they may still have the issues you're talking about, Elham. They may still be uncertain, even though they know it's the right step about their ability to make the change. And that should be addressed too. Um, which actually ties to what you're trying to, the direction you're pushing, Matt, in terms of performance is that we want to have successful outcomes for the organization. We don't just want to tick a box and say we've had learning, we've been doing that. But there are barriers to actually successful, being successful and having impact. I hear from orgs, you know, oh, well, nobody will let us actually measure anything. We are responsible, for instance, to sales, and yet we can't actually measure any impact we have on sales. We can't look at the sales figures. We can't don't have access to them, which is barking mad in my mind, right? Um, it's just crazy to to be able to well to be responsible for something, but not you know you have the responsibility but not the authority. You're in a bad situation. So I think the you. But to be successful, you have to start balancing all these things. Not only do you need to have good learning design and, and good analysis up front to find the objectives, but then you've got to be successful at convincing people to make change and deal with their personal issues. It gets, you know, I've used to say, you know, learning science maybe is as complex as rocket science. Maybe it's more. We're trying to systematically change the arguably the most complex thing in the known universe, our brains. And we have all these complexities we have to deal with, and and it's. Well, you you know me, Clark. Uh, I have the the great unified theory that I ascribe to, that that works with everything self determination theory, and when we're dealing with change, if we can look at how we can mechanically put in place the things that are necessary to satisfy each person's three basic psychological needs we facilitate that change more effectively. And so if we can build structure around the intervention in a way that doesn't feel controlling or manipulative or uh, coercive or micromanagey, then that's supportive. If we find ways to support their autonomy by facilitating them to see not just the value from our perspective, but why it's a value from their perspective, it goes a long way to getting them to take ownership uh, intrinsically for it. And then if we can get them to feel a part of the greater community and feel we have their back and feel that and so forth, all of these things collectively help facilitate that change. But they are nuances and that's just about selling the change. It's not actually instituting the change. The learning science there about making sure you have the right performance objective that's and the, the right practice. That's the point of having right time. That's why we're talking about the stages, right? At each stage of it, you have different nuanced components, right? So right, I want to add. A, you, you carry on. Finish your thought. Oh, I have no thoughts. I just okay. <laughs> no. A very good point that um, Clark is like as if he's reading my mind that what I had structured <laughs> for all of these years to share is that um, you're absolutely right that I realized it in this field. Um, it's more than just those technical skills and it's too complex that I got more and more interested about humans. 
and the psychology behind that, our behavioral science and motivations and all of this behind it. But most importantly, what I learned was that when you mentioned that people might be resisting change because it's being imposed on them, that's, for instance, is one is me, you know? So, and how would you be able to get that buy-in from me without imposing that? That's how I learn and I need to be flexible with my stakeholders. I need to give them some flexibility and not necessarily saying that things have to be done only this way. There is no just one way as a right way. Even though the organization was trying to, is, they are mostly trying to exactly autonomy, Clark. So giving them that sense of autonomy that they are part of this decision-making. What I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make in here is that based on what I learned, which I didn't know that the framework before until I got to use it in my doctoral dissertation for my own study working with the hospital, was that um, how to make things, how to involve them from the beginning that they feel that they are part of this change-making, you know, rather than feeling that now something is just being imposed on them and now they must follow. The other thing that I also learned other than actually giving them that flexibility is, um, you know, asking questions, letting them, you, you actually met, you mentioned it about the accountability in that uh, regard is they are the ones eventually reaching those decisions rather than me telling them. So by asking the right questions, we can lead them into what we ultimately have in mind in terms of letting them discover that rather than dictating the change to them, you know? Well, and that, that's why I think we have to get concrete. And so it, it's, uh, to Clark's point, it's very nuanced, right? So each scenario, each context, each person requires a different algorithm but um, the more I, we can work in the checklists and say, all right, we need to, to make sure we have very clear spoken objectives for this at different tiers, right? Strategic objectives, tactical objectives, timed objectives and milestones. We need to make sure the people on our team have the capability and the capacity to execute. We have, uh, there's all sorts of things we have to go through in each of our, our columns uh, in the checklist to make sure that happens. So there, there are concrete things we have to do as well as have the empathy to be aware of the fact that people have, have different perspectives. It's kind of why I like the three, three reasons why someone might say no to me, because if they're going to say no, they don't buy my premise. There are a myriad of reasons why they won't accept my premise. So how can I connect that? It makes it a little easier for me to answer that question and wonder why they're not accepting it and so forth. Um, but we got to get concrete at, at some point with them as well. Well, that's what checklists do is they yeah. encapsulate the received wisdom and just help us remember to tick off every box. So when we're thinking about how are we going to present this to an audience and get their buy-in, we should be thinking through what should, what would gives them autonomy what um, helps them feel like they're related to other people that we care about them? How do we make sure that they're developing mastery and feeling like that's happening um, and supported in success? So 
but and that carries through how do we ensure that we make sure we've got the right practice aligned with the objectives how do we make sure that we've got the objectives that are really going to make the change we have processes and practices and checklists are just external representations of it but it really makes a difference to bring in the frameworks that we know find a synthesis of it that we're going to use and apply that and ideally evidence-based practices yeah well and there there's so many domains we have to get good at you know not mm -hmm. beyond the learning to your point earlier ellen right we have to be good at politics we have to be good at strategic thinking we have to be experts on learning um and and so forth so it gets really challenging when you're you're only good at two of those and there are 10 of them that we have mm -hmm. to deal with yeah precisely one of the other things that because i want to be i want our chat to be practical for folks who will be listening is that um many of us it might be hard for us to get feedback from others as how am i doing you know and people might not be willing to share openly with you um but i try to um display that eagerness to my stakeholders that look if you give me the feedback I can get better I can help you better so your feedback is really valuable to me and if we want to tie it to gathering data doing evaluation evaluating our performance while we are working on that which includes the processes and all those nuances as well is key along the way we have to be doing this and it was through those candid feedback that I got to learn, okay, this is what I have to change without taking any of that, you know, personal. And in fact, that's what really helped me um, get better and better in my job. Um, it just being able to work with any kind of team sometimes might be hard, but you still <laughs> want to make it right. Well, you remind me of thinking of, you know, about making it safe for those people to share with you what you're doing when you're setting up and saying it helps me get better. You are making it safe. I'm reminded of the book Crucial Conversations that talks about how to make it safe and how to phrase questions so that people will answer. We don't necessarily have this. We're not trained how to ask questions in a way people will want to answer them or how to give advice in ways that people want to listen to us. And yet this matters. It's all this, you know, and in some sense, this is more being human than it is just being a, a learning designer, because really, these are skills everybody should have, but they're not made explicit. They're not taught. We're mm -hmm. taught stuff like the quadratic equation, <laughs> which nobody uses <laughs> in their subsequent life. Um, Wait, I use that every day. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. <laughs> Give me one example that you've used it today. Just now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um well i i think that i think uh one of the things that i find scary sometimes is when you watch a group of executives talk with each other the pace is like this you know it's super fast it's brutal it's blunt there there's no cruelty in it or at least that you hope there isn't but it's it's they don't take the time with any niceties uh, and because they're moving fast. And then you watch them interact with people who are younger or less senior, 
and those people tend to feel like they just got steamrolled and mm -hmm. you reflect back to the executive hey this person just thinks you killed them and uh, didn't like them or didn't like their idea and the executive was shocked because the executive has no awareness of the communication style that just steamrolled that person um, and of course, the younger person, the less experienced person thinks uh, uh, very malevolent ideas about the executive or malevolent intent from the executive. And so you end up having a, a very different experience from both sides uh, as they're trying to pitch their ideas or get people involved. And so it, it's an interesting thing, just the perspectives alone that people have. It, to, to me, that's interesting because it goes back to my point that nobody's teaching these things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, some of uh, I've talked. I'm talking to a number of people recently who are all involved in executive coaching, and what they're effectively teaching them is how to start looking at other people and not be that jerk. Um, it's uh, and they. I understand they're under pressures. They have short-term shareholder returns they're supposed to generate, and that that's what's motivating them. But if they don't do it in an effective way, it's going to undermine their effectiveness. And yet they have no awareness, as you point out, Matt, yeah. and no uh, uh, no models to use to guide them in improving until they get it reflected back and start seeing it and, and are given frameworks. We used to get hired by executives to train the less experienced and junior folks how to talk to the executives. Uh, to enable them to be more effective. And then one day, uh, Tiagi looked at the executive and said, what if we just train you to be nice? And <laughs> there was a <laughs> silence in the room and then we were fired. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was definitely a different ball game. So we have concrete things, which are checklists. We have rubrics, we have evaluation criteria, and so forth. Uh, in fact, if, if, if Clark and you and Ellen are okay with it, I'll put in my motivation checklist for change environments uh, into the user list if that if anyone wants it. Mm -hmm. But in framework, so you know, yeah. self termination theory is a framework, cognitive load is a framework, these have utility in helping us address different aspects of what we're doing. And there's more. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm interested. Uh, we'll be having on the think like a, an anthropologist, Mark Ehlert, coming in to talk to us. Think to your point, Elam, about that. being human. That's what anthropologists do: is look at how humans interact with the world in different ways than cognitive scientists do, and different way than learning designers do. And um, but we knowing the models where they fit how you know and when there's conflicting ones or ones that are different ones how do we synthesize and create something useful but the more structure we provide matt your checklist is is another tool that helps people it requires years of i mean all of this it's funny you just mentioned anthropology all along years i thought that i wanted to study anthropology because i realized that i'm asking too many questions i'm too curious about the humans wise maybe you should have studied that i don't know if i'm the wrong or right field right now but um i can see the importance of that in our field you know in having knowledge of that at least and um to your point 
because not just humans are complex creatures, but also um, the fact that every context, every individual is different. The best lesson that I learned when after um, feeling that now I'm really highly qualified after years of experience and I joined this new organization and I wanted to um, just, you know, eagerly share all my expertise with them. I realized that every organization is different too. And I can't just take what I learned, whatever that I had before, now bring it on into this new organization because they have a different culture. Even if I felt that now I have global experience, I have worked with all types of people from different you know, countries and ethnicities. So I know better, but no, I did not know better, you know, and hey, having Ellen, that- Ellen, can we take a step back for a second? You know, we, we all banty back and forth the word culture and Mark's is gonna, next week when Mark meets with Clark on think like a, Mark's going to have a specific word as an anthropologist, a usage, a definition for what culture means. But in organizations, we think about culture probably a bit differently. So when mm -hmm. we're talking about culture in the organization, what do we mean? What what are we thinking about when we're talking about culture? And to be more, yeah. What, what are we talking about with it? Is how we interact and communicate with each other if I just want to put it simply and precise, just concisely mm -hmm. there. But then if I want to unpack that is how they perceive feedback or sharing opinions, how things are perceived in terms of interactions or the work that is handed over to them for review, for instance, are they, I worked with people that they were not willing to provide they were just hesitant to give me their real feedback on the work that I really needed their feedback on simply because they were, they were afraid that they could hurt my feelings. And I was like, why are you even thinking in that way? It just doesn't make sense. This is not my work. They would use, they would just use a term and a possessive pronoun here that adjective saying that this is your work. Mm. Or you don't want to have anything to do with it. And the other thing about culture is that the sense of teamwork and collaboration, how much people are willing to um, get together to come up with ideas and bounce ideas rather than everyone being in their own silos and not wanting to even be involved in anything that just goes beyond their own, um, you know, area of expertise or whatever they were tasked to do, for instance the willingness to openness to help each other out. Um, I have observed that in some organizations, people are really willing to do that. And the whole culture has been built around that. And because of the psychological safety that has been created within that organization. Whereas in some other organizations, um, a simple question, which I have experienced personally myself too, can be misconstrued and then perceived as if you are it's criticizing an yeah. as an attack correct having that open open mind you know in terms of feeling that we're all learning together rather than the egos that come into play in here you know so and yeah i would just you know to you 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 that's what my thought was, yeah. Well, thinking of psychological safety, Amy Edmondson was part earlier of a HBR, Harvard Business Review uh, article on the dimensions of a learning culture. And what they argued was good culture was, you know, for instance, openness to new ideas and psychological safety and time for reflection and valuing diversity. Um, but if you think about it, and that's just some of the things you mentioned some others, but those aspects and Harold Jarkey talks about, you know, whether you, how willing you are to communicate with others, sharing what you're talking about, and that's partly of safety and collaboration, how willing you are to work with other people. But you can be anywhere along a, those as a dimension. You can be very not open to new ideas or too open to new ideas in each of those. So all of those are factors that will change in any situation. So your experience, you thinking you've been to many orgs, you understand all the dimensions, but you won't know have known that specific culture. And it may there be, it sounds like there's aspects that could be improved there to make it a more learning culture where they don't take a personal, they're not afraid to give their opinion because they know they're doing it in a way that's open and will be received as a good constructive feedback as opposed to a personal attack. But all that has to be established and changed and modeled and made active through the stuff you were talking about before. How do we make change happen? Well, and just one person coming or going can completely modify mm -hmm. that that culture as well or we go location to location you know Elam, you did a lot of work in geneva and las vegas i'm pretty sure the cultures in geneva and las vegas in the buildings were probably quite different um just organizationally yeah and, Hofstetter's uh, cultural dimensions where he analyzed country yeah. cultures right but then you get into you know how is that changed by if you bring in a multinational to have an office in that company and they have different cultures, what ends up as the sort of hybrid mix in the middle? Yeah. It's, it's complex. So there's just just to add another level of complexity, what we're already talking about. <laughs> I just made it harder. <laughs> There was well, a book I, some years ago I read, Culture Map, because, um, you know, I, I love traveling and just because I want to learn about humans and different, that's why I love languages too, because learning language can open up a new world to you. So I, um, that's where I realized that um, by learning that how you can map all these different cultures, if you're in a multinational company, for instance, every individual is bringing their own culture and it's really important to learn about that rather than that's why I try to establish now that right in my first kickoff meeting um, with these teams is that with this team of stakeholders I ask them I want to know more about them I want to know what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with I do ask them how would you like me to give you feedback which way would you like it so I want to make it as comfortable as possible for them so that they don't feel that um, that's me only. And now um, they would be like at me and you. And so that kind of distance is not really some help. We don't try to make it closer and then we close those gaps between us rather than making it just one whole team. 
that they could be working together towards a common goal. And um, that I felt that it is better than me taking my culture everywhere. That's why I consider myself a global citizen because I realized that everywhere I am, I need to learn about that a specific area and then see how you can blend and how you can also um, not simulate with everyone. You are who you are. I'm not referring to changing for the sake of people. That's not the point I'm making in here. Is making, creating a kind of environment, which it was interesting during Christmas time, I was reading at the Social by Design by Mark Brates, that that really takes some time to bringing that social aspect even though we human beings are social species, I found ourselves sometimes being very antisocial in many respects, if you want to consider that. So um, being aware of those and learning about those, I really think is important in our field. Yeah, in, um, it really gets at, you know, we talk a lot about trust. And having a lot of trust, but then if you ask the person, hey, what does it mean for Clark to trust me? Or what does it mean for me to trust Clark? And no one can actually explain it, right? So uh, uh, giving Tiagi some credit for this, but he he said there were five factors that he he's identified in the literature that seem to be come up over and over again. Uh, the first is that you have to perceive that the person is selfless toward you. In other words, that they have your back, that they they don't have an agenda and conflict with you, which is why a lot of times bosses and employees cannot uh, feel trust because the boss often has a conflicting agenda. Um, the second was predictability, that if you go in one day and Clark yells at you and the next day Clark's super nice and you can't tell which Clark you're going to get, that undermines trust. The third was a sense of genuineness or authenticity that you have to believe that Clark is credible and authentic and genuine with you. And the third was intimacy or, or relatedness in this. If you've never met Clark, you're not going to give him your wallet to hold and protect. But if you've known him for years, you're probably a lot more comfortable uh, in the same and other types of dynamics. And the last is in the context of whatever it is you're doing, that Clark has to have the competency or the the know-how, you have to trust that he's going to be able to do what he says he's going to do. And that all five of these have to be present. And if any one of them gets undermined, then trust is gone, which also means it doesn't mean I don't like Clark. And it doesn't mean that I don't trust Clark in one context, but not. it could mean I don't trust him in another. And so trust is highly contextual and highly nuanced and highly personalized and highly subjective which makes it highly complex to figure out and um, and very difficult to map or navigate. Uh, and that's why, to your point, Ellen, cultural factors really can undermine things. Misunderstandings break down any one of those factors. Right. And so trust is essential, yet uber, uber complex to, to grasp and to, to manage not manipulate, that would undermine one of the factors. A colleague, Jerry Mikulski, I think of as my trust guy. I want to bounce Theagi's five points off him and see how he reacts. I'll send it to you. His, his, his general thing is um, we should start from a position of trust. 
it, in general trust is earned, but he's wondering what would happen if instead we started, he's thinking more broadly about how do we improve the world. <laughs> but yeah. um, I, I find it an interesting, um, I think it's really important as you point out. Matt. All right, so let, let's kind of sum up things here. So first we're talking about the notion that there's a lot different barriers that occur throughout our learning intervention have to do with humans who represent different constituents, whether there are stakeholders, uh, people who have a lot of influence that may have different conflicting agendas, our end users, our learners, their customers, and uh, subject matter experts and more. We also have uh, uh, different types of cultural phenomena in the environment that get in the way. Um, misunderstandings, trust factors, motivational factors, how we talk to each other, how we communicate with each other, the different cultural nuances from office to office even. We have systems factors, which we didn't really get into too much, but operational procedural factors that uh, can undermine things in terms of capacity or capabilities among team members. We have people who may be incented to do other things because of those systems. So we're training them how to give good feedback to each other, but they're incented not to give good feedback and so forth. So there are a lot of different barriers. Our thought was that we use different checklists and other job aids and job support tools to try and manage the environment a bit. Uh, whether it's the motivational checklist or other tools for us to make sure our evaluation or instructional design, blah, 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 are in place. Did I miss something, Clark? I, I just want to come back to one thing I thought was really interesting and important was Elham's empathy, where yeah. she recognized that there is this variety. And when she talked to her people, she said, let me find out how to talk to you and how that is a theme she started with and and is expressed throughout. I think that's really important. It's a curiosity, curiosity about how things work and continuing to get better at it. But it's also recognizing that other people have different experiences, stakeholders, team members, everybody, and that we want to understand that because the better we do, the better job we can do at, at approaching that. And because of those different barriers or those different perspectives, we may get people rejecting what we're trying to do uh, through a myriad of different nuanced uh, causal factors. So that has been a discussion. I'm not sure we've come up with any exact answers or prescriptions because I don't think there are any other than to pay attention. Um, but one learn of more. learn more about humans, really learn more about the the psychological behaviors, the attitudes, the how and why, you know, the yeah. this working together, because we need to build that kind of um, healthy environment and relationship with each other that eventually when the project is complete, um, that relationship also lasts. You know, it's not just while companies tend to view people as just assets, I and I kind of we might get into a completely different conversation right now. So I don't want to unpack that. But 
leaders of organizations play a key role in this, in terms of establishing this. And um, that these are not just some figures that you just move around to get the project and the job done is way beyond that and why we are doing that work. I try to somehow shift that through questions um, by asking questions from uh, the teams I'm working with so that um, I'll get them to think about it. And I also openly tell them that I'm here to learn from you too, because um, yes, yeah, we are experts, but they're also experts in their um, area. So having that respect towards them is also essential in terms of how we approach this. So it's pretty complex, but by starting to ask questions and trying to learn about why humans behave in this way, <laughs> then we might be able to gradually. One of the things I wanted to add on as a key thing, as a takeaway from here, that helped me in my job before I got to read books because I've been reading books all along, but I wasn't so sure how to apply them was my own reflections and getting feedback from them. So um, to any folk who is wondering how to, because at conferences, whenever I speak, I've always been asked this question. So how, what do you do to get the buy-in? I told them, first of all, leverage on the data that you want to share with them. Don't keep sharing research with them because it might just backfire sometimes. But also um, try to start right from the beginning, build that relationship and trust with them, report with them that they're humans. They're not just that figure that have been perceived as part of that whole um, you know, ecosystem. And um, then we're all together and we're all learning from one another, you know, and those reflections. After every meeting, I have always reflected, how did I um, react? Was it right or not? How can I make it better? And um, what do I want to keep? Um, and not power of good What's that? The power of good debriefing. Good debriefing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So these are practical things which folks yeah. can definitely use too. Yeah. Wonderful. And uh, that brings us to the end of our segment here, but we need to transition to my favorite topic, the best and the worst. And Elam, you're brand new to the show. We've uh, hopefully we'll get you on again. Hopefully you've enjoyed the time. I would love to. Um, but we traditionally try and do a segment at the very end, a fairly quick segment on what is one of the best things you've experienced in the past week? By the way, it could be the past 10 years. No one will know. Oh. And what is the worst thing you've experienced uh, in the context of the L&D? And uh, Clark, would you want like me to go first or you want to go first this time? <laughs> this buys him more time to think. <laughs> All right. So my I'm going to start with the worst because it leads to the best. So at a university that shall remain nameless, because I it'll get my kid expelled probably, uh, if anyone actually listens to the show. But um, so uh, the newspaper, the student newspaper, uh, printed a, not an editorial, but an op-ed piece from a columnist. The columnist was pretty, pretty um, 
clearly supportive of the Palestinian side of the Hamas-Israeli conflict. And um, the reaction to this column was uh, one of calling the writer an anti-Semite, which, by the way, if you read the column, did not indicate that at all, and was pretty severe uh, to the newspaper and the board and the executive team on the newspaper as being anti-Semitic. In other words, they were shutting down the questions that the columnists legitimately raised for discourse. And uh, at a university, a very well-regarded, well-respected university, this is really scary to me. And not only that, they then went into the Student Administration Council and put in a bid to condemn the paper and have the paper labeled as anti-Semitic. It was thankfully tossed out. The board threw it out and said there was no cause for this. But the students in charge of the paper were devastated. They were scared. They were attacked and they were threatened by past alumni and others uh, to get doxxed. Are you familiar with what doxing is? No, uh, I'm not. Doxing is where they publish your name and address and name you as an anti-Semite or whatever they want. And they tell future employers don't hire them. So when employers search for your name on the internet, they'll find that you have been affiliated with bad things. Well, it's worse than that. It's having your name and address available so for people to go to your house and do bad things. That too, that too, which would have been my address in this case. <laughs> so, which would so so this is this is a horrible thing. But as we're the the school handled it uh, sort of well in the end in terms of protecting the kids. But as I was getting upset about this. I did a search, and as Clark knows, I'm a huge fan of the psychologist, linguist, and I would call him also a philosopher, Steven Pinker. And I didn't realize that Steven Pinker, several years ago, created the Heterodox Academy, which is an academy to say, hey, guys, we've gone too far in academia. We are now uh, no longer allowing different perspectives, or even discourse to question. And he's not advocating for people to be malicious, uh, to be uh, hateful or anything, but it was to allow discourse for someone to say, hey, do we really mean that? Is that really valuable? And he feels that academics are getting shut down, that in our universities, we've gone so far that we're no longer allowing people to present different perspectives and to explore them. And it warmed my heart to hear my hero uh, talking about this need for discourse, um, especially when many of the folks that I grew up admiring are in many ways culprits of shutting down the, the dialogue that they used to tell me was so important themselves. That's why we had tenure was to allow yeah. uh, faculty members to have the opportunity to comment on society without repercussions, which yeah. has been undermined over the years. Yeah. So Ellen Clark, who wants to go next? Clark, go next. Sure. <laughs> um, so the worst for me is it's generative AI is here, 
But what's worrying me, what I'm concerned about is recently the extreme, inc what I see as increasing divergence in the dialogue. We're getting more and more extreme positive things. This is the greatest thing ever. It's changing the world. It's, and we're on the other side, we're getting, oh no, it's, it's getting worse. It's horrible. It's, it's evil. Instead of saying, okay, let's step through and say what's good and what's bad. You know, there's confusion over what AI is. Everybody's right now, it seems like generative AI is what everybody's talking about, even though that's only one facet of AI. But it just, I, I really wish we'd get through the hype and maybe we're on, you know, the hype cycle and we can't get away from it until it over, over promises finally collapse, hopefully. But I just, the worst for me is that that divergence is happening and I don't feel like we're getting clarity. We're getting lots of fire, lots of smoke, not enough clarity. The best is I've just been having some really fun conversations with people, in some cases, talking about just they're presenting what they're thinking about doing for design and giving the opportunity to, to infuse a little more learning science and a little more creativity into it, helping them turn it from content presentation to learning experience design, all the way up to conversations about, it feels like we're getting better and more conversations about the quality of, you know, about the emergence of learning science being a factor that people are beginning to pay attention to. Still early days, but I'm just loving having converse, positive conversations about the opportunities and the directions. And Wonderful. thanks for helping me with the ideas. <laughs> you just helped me come up with that since I hadn't prepared for it. So the, that goes back into our, actually our whole conversation today, but um, also to your point about having discourse. But um, one thing, the worst thing that happened to me, it was two years ago that I was working with this team and I was tasked to review their learning platform and give my feedback. So I wrote a report to them that that platform was, um, what is a politically correct word I can use in here? You know what I'm talking about, not usable at any level. So the user experience was really, uh, poor the learning design also poor so I gave um the my candid feedback constructive feedback in terms of how this could be improved what the reaction was that they didn't want to they got defensive and they thought this is this has been our baby for many years how dare you know and fast forward um, two months ago, they reached out to me um, that we want to you to revisit our platform and go back and give us feedback. I said, but I already gave it to you. And they said, no, we've just come to realize that um, they didn't want to say, yes, you were right. <laughs> but they said that we received feedback from our learners and they feel they are lost constantly. And the best thing that I could say is this, that not that they got back to me, that it took them to realize and recognize the fact that um, how they could have changed. And I was very delighted to see that they have actually changed their viewpoint. And now they tell me whatever you say, 
And I keep telling them that, no, it's what we discuss with each other. And then we finally just come to a conclusion of what is best for the learners. So that was the best thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, Ellen. We're so delighted you you joined us and so me. delighted. By the way, in full disclosure, Ellen has joined our advisory board. And so uh, uh, welcome to the LDA community formally, even though you've been uh, working with us off and on for the last several years. So we're thrilled to have you more frequently with us. And, and uh, Likewise. Again, thanks for having me. Thanks for giving me the time to chat about this. I feel uh, this is an important thing to chat about and have that discourse and start that discourse. So we love it. And of course, in two weeks, our friend Marcus Bernhardt will have another episode on AI insights. And in one month, Clark and I are joined by Emma Weber from Australia who's going to debate me on the merits of coaching with Clark moderating. Mm -hmm. We're also going to have an LDA debate formally as a formal session as well on the same topic. Uh, but Emma and I, uh, we couldn't stop fighting the other day on our, on our telephone call about it. So we decided to continue it in a podcast as well as in the debate that we're going to do. And uh, Clark is the perfect moderator for this. Uh, as we go forward. So tune in for that as well. And uh, we thank all of you. And, uh, we'll see you out there in the ether. Take care. Have a good day and a wonderful weekend. Thank you.